Section 10 of Chesterfield's Letters to His Son Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Letter 20 London, November 24th, Old Style, 1747 Dear Boy, As often as I write to you, and that, you know, is pretty often, so often I am in doubt whether it is to any purpose, and whether it is not labor and paper lost. This entirely depends upon the degree of reason and reflection which you are master of, or think proper to exert. If you give yourself time to think, and have sense enough to think right, two reflections must necessarily occur to you. The one is, that I have a great deal of experience, and that you have none. The other is, that I am the only man living who cannot have, directly or indirectly, any interest concerning you but your own. From which two undeniable principles, the obvious and necessary conclusion is, that you ought, for your own sake, to attend to and follow my advice. If, by the application which I recommend to you, you acquire a great knowledge, you are alone the gainer, I pay for it. If you should deserve either a good or a bad character, mine will be exactly what it is now, and will neither be the better in the first case, nor worse in the latter. You alone will be the gainer or the loser. Whatever your pleasures may be, I neither can nor shall envy you them, as old people are sometimes suspected by young people to do, and I shall only lament if they should prove such as are unbecoming a man of honour, or below a man of sense. But you will be the real sufferer, if they are such. As, therefore, it is plain that I can have no other motive than that of affection in whatever I say to you, you ought to look upon me as your best, and for some years to come, your only friend. True friendship requires certain proportions of age and manners, and can never subsist where they are extremely different, except in the relations of parent and child, where affection on one side and regard on the other make up the difference. The friendship which you may contract with people of your own age may be sincere, may be warm, but must be, for some time, reciprocally unprofitable, as there can be no experience on either side. The young leading the young is like the blind leading the blind. They will both fall into the ditch. The only sure guide is he who has often gone the road which you want to go. Let me be that guide, who have gone all roads, and who can consequently point out to you the best. If you ask me why I went by any of the bad roads myself, I will answer you very truly, that it was for want of a good guide. Ill example invited me one way, and a good guide was wanting to show me a better. But if anybody, capable of advising me, had taken the same pains with me, which I have taken, and will continue to take with you, I should have avoided many follies and inconveniences, which undirected youth run me into. My father was neither desirous nor able to advise me, which is what I hope you cannot say of yours. You see that I make use only of the word advice, because I would much rather have the assent of your reason to my advice than the submission of your will to my authority. This, I persuade myself, will happen, from that degree of sense which I think you have, and therefore I will go on advising, and with hopes of success. You are now settled for some time at Leipzig. The principal object of your stay there is the knowledge of books and sciences, which, if you do not, by attention and application, make yourself master of while you are there, you will be ignorant of them all the rest of your life. And take my word for it, a life of ignorance is not only a very contemptible, but a very tiresome one. Redouble your attention, then, to Mr. Hart, in your private studies of the literae humanior, especially Greek. State your difficulties, whenever you have any, 
and do not suppress them, either from some mistaken shame, lazy indifference, or in order to have done the sooner. Do the same when you are at lectures with Professor Moscow, or any other professor. Let nothing pass till you are sure that you understand it thoroughly, and accustom yourself to write down the capital points of what you learn. When you have thus usefully employed your mornings, you may, with a safe conscience, divert yourself in the evenings, and make those evenings very useful too, by passing them in good company, and by observation and attention, learning as much of the world as Leipzig can teach you. You will observe and imitate the manners of the people of the best fashion there, not that they are, it may be, the best manners in the world, but because they are the best manners of the place where you are, to which a man of sense always conforms. The nature of things, as I have often told you, is always and everywhere the same, but the modes of them vary more or less in every country, and an easy and genteel conformity to them, or rather the assuming of them at proper times and in proper places, is what particularly constitutes a man of the world, and a well-bred man. Here is advice enough, I think, and too much, it may be, you will think, for one letter. If you follow it, you will get knowledge, character, and pleasure by it. If you do not, I only lose operum et oleum, which, in all events, I do not grudge you. I send you, by a person who sets out this day for Leipzig, a small packet from your mamma, containing some valuable gifts which you left behind, to which I have added, by way of a New Year's gift, a very pretty toothpick case. And, by the way, pray take great care of your teeth, and keep them extremely clean. I have likewise sent you the Greek roots, lately translated into English from the French of the Port Royal. Inform yourself what the Port Royal is. To conclude with a quibble, I hope you will not only feed upon these Greek roots, but likewise digest them perfectly. Adieu. Letter 21. London, December 15th, Old Style, 1747. Dear boy, there is nothing which I more wish that you should know, and which fewer people do know, than the true use and value of time. It is in everybody's mouth, but in few people's practice. Every fool, who slatterns away his whole time in nothings, utters, however, some trite commonplace sentence, of which there are millions, to prove at once the value and the fleetness of time. The sundials, likewise, all over Europe, have some ingenious inscription to that effect, so that nobody squanders away their time, without hearing and seeing daily how necessary it is to employ it well, and how irrecoverable it is if lost. But all these admonitions are useless, where there is not a fund of good sense and reason to suggest them, rather than receive them. By the manner in which you now tell me that you employ your time, I flatter myself that you have that fund. That is the fund which will make you rich indeed. I do not, therefore, mean to give you a critical essay upon the use and abuse of time, but I will only give you some hints with regard to the use of one particular period of that long time which, I hope, you have before you, I mean the next two years. Remember, then, that whatever knowledge you do not solidly lay the foundation of before you are eighteen, you will never be the master of while you breathe. Knowledge is a comfortable and necessary retreat and shelter for us in an advanced age, and if we do not plant it while young, it will give us no shade when we grow old. I neither require nor expect from you great application to books, after you are once thrown out into the great world. I know it is impossible, and it may even in some cases be improper. This, therefore, is your time, and your only time, for unwearied and uninterrupted application. If you should sometimes think it a little laborious, consider that labor is the unavoidable fatigue of a necessary journey. 
The more hours a day you travel, the sooner you will be at your journey's end. The sooner you are qualified for your liberty, the sooner you shall have it, and your manumission will entirely depend upon the manner in which you employ the intermediate time. I think I offer you a very good bargain, when I promise you upon my word, that if you will do everything that I would have you do till you are eighteen, I will do everything that you would have me do ever afterward. I knew a gentleman, who was so good a manager of his time, that he would not even lose that small portion of it, which the calls of nature obliged him to pass in the necessary house, but gradually went through all the Latin poets in those moments. He bought, for example, a common edition of Horace, of which he tore off gradually a couple of pages, carried them with him to that necessary place, read them first, and then sent them down as a sacrifice to Cloacina. This was so much time fairly gained, and I recommend you to follow his example. It is better than only doing what you cannot help at those moments, and it will make any book, which you shall read in that manner, very present in your mind. Books of science, and of a grave sort, must be read with continuity, but there are very many, and even very useful ones, which may be read with advantage by snatches, and unconnectedly. Such are all the good Latin poets, except Virgil in his Aeneid, and such are most of the modern poets, in which you will find many pieces worth reading, that will not take up above seven or eight minutes. Bales, Moraris, and other dictionaries are proper books to take and shut up for the little intervals of otherwise idle time, that everybody has in the course of the day, between either their studies or their pleasures. Good night. End of section 10 read by Professor Heather and by. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.